Welcome to the O'Reilly Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorica. Before we jump into today's episode, I want to remind our listeners that we do have two event series that they can go and attend and learn more about the topics covered in this podcast. The first one is called the Strata Data Conference, which you can find at strataconf.com. The second one is the Artificial Intelligence Conference, which you can find at the AIConf.com. In this episode of The Data Show, I sat down with Nilesh Salyan. He is a software engineer at Stitch Fix. Uh, as many of you know, Stitch Fix is a company that combines machine learning and human expertise to personalize shopping. So as companies integrate machine learning into their products and systems, uh, there are many important foundational technologies that you've heard me talk about with my guests in this podcast that uh, will come into play. And uh, some of those uh, uh, foundational technologies are the subject of our conversation, including data lineage, uh, data governance and data catalogs, and uh, data platforms. And uh, I just wanted to tell our listeners that Nilesh is part of a strong lineup of instructors and speakers who will be speaking at uh, Strata Data London on many topics in data engineering and architecture. And he is one of several speakers who will present uh, on uh, their uh, data platforms that they are using inside their companies. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. Nilesh Salyan, software engineer at Stitch Fix. Welcome to The Data Show. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for having me. So we first met when you were back at Cloudera, working mostly on Spark. So as a way to introduce you to the, the audience, what kinds of things did you do with Spark at Cloudera? Thanks for asking that. Yeah, I, I started off my journey in Cloudera four years ago. Um, back then, it was pretty heavy on MapReduce version 1, and then it migrated off to version 2. And then Spark became sort of the new technology that everybody was using. And so I started exploring Spark, helping out. Mostly my role interacted with a lot of customers. So think of large banks, large enterprise customers who use their use these frameworks for large distributed computing. And sort of back then, there was sort of a lack of expertise in that field, especially in our team. So I sort of grew organically within that community, learned a lot of things right from the basics. I had to teach myself from scratch and sort of uh, helped out the team uh, and gradually proceeded becoming um, a little bit more familiar with the technology itself and then uh, help out a lot more uh, within the team itself and the customer base of Cloudera. So in many ways, you were at the front lines of Spark becoming adopted by enterprise. So how did enterprise end up deciding to use Spark? I think that decision came with the growth of the community itself. Like Hadoop, the Hadoop ecosystem was growing um, not just not just in traditional use cases, but going to having more variety of use cases that don't think MapReduce sufficed for the longest time. And then Spark grew out of that sort of necessity of solving some of the problems, large-scale distributed computing, uh, faster time, easier to understand code. Like writing a MapReduce program is kind of tedious for somebody who just didn't didn't know anything. So Spark gave that sort of nice gateway for companies to enter, explore things, and that exploration phase was decent enough that while Spark was developing, it gave a good sort of 
test base for customers and even the developers in the community that, hey, uh, there's enough traction within this community that people are using. And so slowly, slowly, companies used to sort of get out of the MapReduce traditional workflows and enter into Spark. And I think what helped beyond a lot of things in Spark adoption was like the introducing of Spark streaming. You had Spark SQL, machine learning library. All of that stuff, I think, helped and aided the growth of Spark within the companies itself. And they sort of found that niche use cases to become more traditional. And then that's how Spark, I think, became one of the larger frameworks that people used in companies. So in the early days, and I think this is still true today, I think people use Spark a lot for ETL sort of things, right? Yeah, I think I think the ETL use case, I don't I can't pinpoint which particular time it started, but that grew out of the use case after like I mentioned with the with Spark SQL's insertion into the community, I think that became sort of the data engineer, data scientist kind of use case because it's sort of the familiar uh, syntax of SQL, I think sort of pushed a lot of people into into the ecosystem and said, hey, you know what, there's this familiar API that I can interact with uh, that I know of and I can adapt my skill set to this framework behind a lot of success in the traditional distributed computing phase. And I think SQL ushered enough use cases and then now you see that community growing into more ETL, larger complex workflows, if you will. So at some point, you decided to leave Cloudera and join Stitch Fix. So what was, uh, I mean, as someone at that point, you know, who was already experienced with Spark, I imagine you had a lot of options, particularly here in the San Francisco Bay Area. So why Stitch Fix? I started looking sometime towards the end of 2016, primarily to get into more of a developer role, into more of the infrastructure development. So I stayed more on sort of the customer facing front like the using of spark and helping out with like debugging and like setting up stuff but i wanted to add more value and get more out of that expertise that i had and stitch fix i enjoyed my conversations with the team this was late 2016 and uh, it showed a lot of promise and there was a team that was forming within the platform team that sort of suited what i wanted from my next role and that kind of fit into what i needed and so it seemed like the perfect avenue to enter at that time and uh, since then, I've been there since late of early February 2017. So one of the reasons I wanted to get you on the podcast is you've spoken regularly at one of the conferences, iChair Strata Data Conference. And you have a couple of talks coming up in uh, San Francisco in March, in London in May. And one of the things you're going to be talking about is data lineage, which is something that's been on my radar. And I and, and I think I've been hearing it mentioned by other data engineers, particularly here in the San Francisco Bay Area. So first of all, why did Stitch Fix decide to build a data lineage system? So data lineage is not something new. It's something that is sort of born out of the necessity of understanding how data is being written interacted within the warehouse. So think of, I like to tell the story when I'm explaining data lineage, and I've talked to enough people in the industry through conferences and whatnot to sort of get their perspective of how they're building. And what I like to explain is think of it as a journey for data. So the data takes a journey entering into your warehouse. Now, this can be transactional data, dashboards, or recommendations. But what is lost in that process of collection of data is sort of the journey and the information of how it came about. Now, if you knew what journey and what, what exactly constituted that data to come into being into your data warehouse or any other storage appliance that you use, that would be really useful for your team itself. Now, 
things about think about it to be helping issues with like quality of data, understanding if something is corrupted. So even like more on the security side, think of GDPR. So you need to know where certain types of information is flowing. And that's sort of one of the one of the hot topics, at least that I heard back in London of this year uh, in the Strata conference. It sort of felt like a lot of the metadata tracking of data was missing. And so think of it as collecting metadata for data to understand more context about data itself. One thing that also brought this to my radar is, you know, with the increasing importance of machine learning and AI, people are starting to think about what software development will look like in the future. And maybe that will be more like a machine learning workflow, right? So both code and data matters. Well, you already have kind of version control for code. So you might need something like that for the data as well, right? That makes sense. Yeah. So the the idea is knowing the uh, the metadata for the data set itself. And that that's like a one, one single line definition of data lineage, uh, especially at Stitch Fix. What we have is we're fortunate to have a data platform that essentially works uh, for our needs. And this includes a combination of S3, which is our sort of data warehouse. We have the high meta store, which helps in tagging and like uh, schema so more defined structure, think of Hive tables. And we have engines like uh, Spark and Presto, which are pretty useful for uh, for our use case. And uh, they provide consistent storage, readability, and our needs for logical distributed computing. Now, with the, with the approach we're trying to take is use this existing platform and some of the information already exists. Like we've we've already collected enough information from every Presto query or every Spark job. But the understanding is how do you tie that to a data set? Let's say the like let's say can you reliably tell which Spark job wrote a specific part of a data set? And that's something we're trying to stitch together essentially. Um, the idea of extracting what I like to call it is more contextual information and essentially tying the tying back the relation between the data set and the application that essentially created it and transformed it. So in my talk, I'm going going over that sort of journey that we took, understanding what we already have, seeing what's missing, prototyping some of the approaches, and sort of tying all that together to make a sort of dependency of a data set. So think of, think of it as a data set having an upstream and a downstream dependency. So if something is writing to that data set, you've created now a link from somewhere upstream to downstream. And this would be crucially useful for um, who's you, anybody who's using that data set to understand what things can break if something changes. So what happens is if you inherit a new project or you jump into a different team, let's say you twiggle with some data set or you do some sort of some sort of bad change into some ETL, you have no idea what breaks downstream. So having that visibility, apart from also getting a, a view of of just the re- the data set itself, so that would be really useful to understand uh, what kind of uh, what kind of data set you're dealing with, and what kind of change that you can bring about that doesn't cause sort of a catastrophic uh, workflow stopping event. Hope that makes sense. As you mentioned, so there's uh, reasons why you would want something like this for audits and compliance, but also debugging and even security reasons. But the other thing you mentioned earlier on, Nilesh, is the notion that this is not new. So let me uh, drill down on that point a little bit. So you worked at Cloudera. You also go to Strata and other conferences a lot. What is 
data lineage out there in the industry if someone wants to buy something like this? Does, does such a system exist? Or is it, as you point out, as you described what you guys have at uh, Stitch Fix, it might be too tied to your internal systems and platforms? So what I meant by not new is there's always been data governance tools that collect enough information um, out there. Like I know Clutter has Navigator, which is sufficiently, um, I don't know the internal workings with it, but I think it solves the problem of data governance and understanding more about data. Uh, what I meant was also, uh, I spoke to companies like Uber, and I think LinkedIn has some sort of product. Netflix is giving a talk right before you at, yeah, at Strata a, San Francisco, also on Lineage. Yeah, I'm talking to the guy who's actually presenting. Uh, I have to meet up with him at some point of time to understand what they're doing. Because uh, there's some similarities in the architecture and something that we can learn. Like he showed up in my talk um, la- during New York, and we had sort of a uh, some time to chat, but we didn't continue the conversation. But uh, as I learned that he's uh, he's actively helping out build that, that capability. So this is a San Francisco Bay Area data engineers uh, new project, huh? <laughs> it's it's kind of um, it's kind of necessary uh, as as time progresses, like. At least you have, like, it becomes easier for maintainability. Like, if you have, like you mentioned, audit trail, uh, security, compliance, those kind of reasons also. But think of think of the benefit of just managing the the data sets that you're you're working with. So, if you're working with ten different databases, you need to know what what's going on in them. So, uh, think of it as if I have to if I have to give you a, a vision of the final product. Think of it as a final uh, graph or a view of some data set, and like it shows you a graph of what it's linked to, and so and then it gives you some metadata information of oh you know what this was the last written from this job, so you can drill down. Let's say you have corrupted data. Let's say you want to debug something. So all of those use cases sort of tie into the to the actual um, the actual use cases that we want to build it for. So let me put you on the spot and uh, let's pretend I'm an um, executive or manager and you threw out a few terms and I ask you to define each of the following terms in a simple way as you can. So I'm going to rattle off three so you can uh, knock them off in succession. Data governance, data lineage, and what is the other one? Let's start there. Data governance sure. and data lineage. Yeah, so governance would mean understanding everything around the data. Like, so with the ecosystem, like the metadata information, clearly things that associate with the data set. So think of it like a holistic view of your data set or data warehouse, uh, like that gives you an ability to audit, that gives you the ability to log, or think of it as a solution that gives you a view of the data warehouse that gives you all the entry points and say, hey, you know what, this is where something was touched. So think of like, if I have to drill it down, think of it like S3 access logs, like you can understand what object was touched. So what you're saying is as far as data governance, there's already vendors and solutions out there. That's right. Yeah. And then I'll come to data lineage, which essentially means the journey of data. So think of the origin of data to the destination. So think of when it starts, like let's say you created a data set, let's say you added some sort of data and you wanted to put it into one singular structured form, that's where you create data. But then you started it off in one particular location, one particular application, and then you finally ended up writing it into a whatever your data warehouse is. And so understanding that path, understanding the metadata that associated with each of those points that it touched, think of those as, let's say it touched 
10 different applications. So if you lose context from one of them, you're, you're sort of lost in the way how it came. So if you have to go back and drill down and say, hey, you know what, I transformed this a little bit wrong in this seventh job. And so that's sort of why my data is corrupted at the end. So think of lineage as being sort of the journey of data from start to finish. So the other thing that I, I as a manager, I want to know that I also hear about is data catalog. So data catalog, I would ask you to sort of give me a perspective, like what it can mean many things. So, you know, as you describe data governance, I think data catalog is part of data governance. In other words, because data governance, as you describe it, is basically a 360 degree view of the data. That's right. So a catalog might be, if I can think of it in our perspective, would be think of it like a meta store kind of thing. So think of definition of data, defining what its schema looks like. So I'm taking structured data in this in this example. So think of table information, think of metadata associated, think of like ownership, think of any kind of data associated with that particular data set. So let's say in a hive table, you would define it. It has n number of columns. These columns have different types. Then you would define, oh, what's the owner of the table? Where's the location where the data lives? So that's sort of a cataloging of that data itself in its structured form. So that whenever you access it, you know the exact information that constitutes that data set particularly. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. By the way, uh, revisiting my uh, my analogy with machine learning, right? So you've got uh, code and data. So you've got version control for code. You have version control for data. And so moving forward, then uh, you can imagine a world where uh, some of these notions that we talk about in data would have equivalent notions in models. So people are starting to talk about model governance, for example, having a 360 degree view of your model, the supporting metadata around your model and things like that. So I don't know if you guys are starting to think about that too. I I haven't heard, uh, at least uh, we haven't focused that or started thinking about that, at least in Stitch Fix. Another team handles that, so I won't speak to it. But the, the point that you made uh, kind of reminds me of another conference I attended in November where they spoke about a lot about data labeling, particularly for model building. And that sort of uh, ties in well with the sort of lineage uh, use cases and sort of giving context of what the model data constitutes and giving giving more perspective of uh, where the training data lives and like labeling it. And I think uh, I think that's something that, that will form uh, a bit more sooner than later. And that's something that's necessary. And I think uh, it'll help that whole push of getting productionized machine learning um, easier. I think a lot of companies are trying to push that. They, there may be solutions out there. Um, I've seen Databricks presenting some stuff back in Spark Summit. Yeah, and then the folks at over at Datatron, for example, are starting to talk about this. Right. So it's 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 an ongoing uh, ongoing use case that people are building on, and I think that's crucial enough to solve. If you're heading towards more machine learning use cases, I think getting that sort of 360 view, like you mentioned, uh, more easier to productionize, that sort of thing. Uh, that might be needed sooner than later. So before we uh, move on from this whole data lineage thing, I just want to emphasize to the listeners that uh, Nilesh will be giving a talk about data lineage at uh, Strata San Francisco in late March. And as a way to close this topic, Nilesh, give us again your one-sentence definition of data lineage. I think you had one earlier, right? Yeah. Uh, if I have to define it in one sentence, uh, think of data lineage would be the journey of data from the start to finish and everything that happens be- between it. 
And so then uh, in uh, May, Nilesh will be giving a different talk at uh, Strata London around uh, evolving your data infrastructure. And I believe this is something that you probably saw a lot of this at Cloudera, the way you described your role working with customers and introducing them to Spark. So in many ways, you saw firsthand how people were slowly evolving their data tools and infrastructure, right? That is true. Yeah, this is this is part stemming from my early experience and seeing how um, companies grew and also being in the forefront, at least on the Stitch Fix side, uh, of building some of that changes. So it's it's a talk that I want to focus more on how you do large-scale changes in your infrastructure. If you want to change something to improve something, have a larger impact, that's something I want to focus on, at least as principle and like how do you do it, some things we've learned. So sort of sharing sort of an experience of how do we evolve uh, data infrastructure and giving sort of like, oh, you know what, this is how we do it. This is kind of the principles we follow, that sort of thing. So I'm keeping it more informal. There's no like defined terms. It's kind of a, it's kind of a more principle heavy. It's more like giving in and uh, sort of anecdotes of changes that we've done that sort of thing. So do you think, though, Nilesh, that what we just talked about ties into this topic of evolving your data infrastructure in the following sense, right? So imagine you had a data lineage and data governance systems that track how people are actually using data, the changes they're making, how they're consuming it, and things like that. So then you start detecting repeatable patterns, common patterns of usage and access and consumption. And so doesn't that inform how you evolve your data infrastructure? It does. And to do that sort of change, you have to understand and take a take a step backwards and seeing what sort of a 360 view of your existing infrastructure. You don't want the things the things you want to look out for are is something already doing it. You don't want to reinvent the wheel when you go to bring some new functionality. And you want to see and you want to draw out how much of a work it would be. So Think of think of doing something small and impactful versus something large and impactful and understanding the time difference and like what what would it what would do. So data lineage is vast. You need to you need to understand where and which parts of the infrastructure are lacking in data lineage, or at least understanding do we need a separate solution? Do we need something bootstrapped within ourselves? Do we need to sort of throw everything out out the window and build it everything everything from scratch? So all those decisions are something that that could take a decent amount of time in terms of planning. So in terms of understanding the ecosystem, talking to different owners, talking to different folks within the team and getting their perspective. And also what I did early on when we were thinking thinking about data lineage at least, where sort of talk to people at different companies in conferences and get sort of their perspective of, how do you see this happening and how do you see this um how do you see this evolving but i think i think at least on our side what we did was just understand the things that were missing and plan out okay let's let's see how we can build this does that does that make sense yeah 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 and the other thing that i've actually no- noticed is that data science and big data and machine learning all of these things are, are being subjected to some form of automation, right? So because uh, people are noticing some things are, some of these things that we're doing are repeatable and automatable. And so some tools are beginning to appear. So some of them concentrate on the model building phase, right? So like the auto whole auto ML stuff. But I think 
some of these other things around building pipelines and uh, validating data might also be subjected to automation. Actually, uh, I don't know how if you are familiar with the system at uh, Salesforce called Transmogrify. No, I'm not. Yeah, yeah. So it's a it's basically so Salesforce has uh, has the problem of. Uh, they have a lot of customers. They're an enterprise software platform, and they have to build many models, right? So for each customer, different model. And so you can't hire enough data scientists to serve the number of customers they have. So they had to build automation tools. And so the automation tool they have is Transmogrify, which actually you should take a look at because it sits on top of Spark. It's open source. Mm, sounds good. Yeah, I'll, I'll check it out. Yeah, yeah. But uh, but the idea there is that at some point, you know, they had too many customers and they realized uh, a lot of these steps around uh, feature engineering and data cleaning, we can automate. That, that makes sense. Yeah, I think it would be crucial to get that automated because the effort is to decrease some of that time from data scientists' work. Like the understanding is to help them solve the problems and give them the tools that need them to be successful. And I think that might be the sort of motivation they they had for automation. And I see that as a, like I mentioned, as a trend in the industry as well. Like you, why why rebuild stuff if something can be automated? Like even validation checks, any kind of test infrastructure, it goes down to the basics of like software engineering, if you will. You can see some of that core software engineering principles shift over into the sort of artificial intelligence machine learning world. And I think I'm a fan of that particular transformation because some of the practices in traditional software engineering is like, okay, test, integration testing, unit testing. I think that sort of can morph into a machine learning equivalent and you could use some more automation, more sort of guardrails before you push something. All those kinds of things that I think are relatable and probably useful in the in the upcoming future as as we explore different things in machine learning and like AI and stuff like that. So you started using Spark in 2014. So yes. you've seen you've seen probably companies uh, evolve their Spark infrastructure and Spark tools along the way. So any anything you that uh, any noticeable patterns that companies are doing? Back then, at least in the Cloudera ecosystem, they were pretty tied to that one big monolithic platform. But coming out of that sort of scope of customer-facing thing, I entered into Stitch Fix, where we have to build our own back-end Spark infrastructure. We still rely on Amazon EMR for uh, the cluster where the compute happens, but there's a host of infrastructure that I speak about in a different talk. I gave this talk last year in Strata uh, about how our Spark infrastructure uh, works for us, uh, which is sort of abstracted away from data scientists. And um, what I can give as terms of advice is at least have the team, There's, let's say you have a particular notion of a platform team or anything that resembles something in the big data realm, you want to make sure that your ecosystem is sound. Like writing a Spark job should not be difficult. You should um, allow things to be logged. You should have enough debugging tools. You should have assistance for people or at least automate some of that and sort of generate like, oh, you know what, debug, sort of a debug report or something like that. So even basic things like making it easy to run the jobs making it easy to track the jobs and actually look at what failed and what succeeded. Basic things like that can be really useful for not just the users of Spark, but the maintainers. Like You don't have to go through that pain once you do that initial push. So we did that early on. That, that sort of infrastructure was a lot set up before I showed up at Stitch Fix, but I sort of inherited some part of that, and I'm currently working on like the backend libraries that help us write data using Spark. The other big trend that you probably also observe is, uh, at least from the time probably 
of uh, 2014 when you started using on Spark to now, just more and more things are being built on the cloud. That's right. Yeah. Is that something that it's not just uh, Silicon Valley companies either, right? So enterprises are starting to build on the cloud. But I think that uh, for some of the more heavily regulated enterprise, maybe it's going to be a hybrid situation, right? So that makes sense. Yeah. And on-premise was pretty big 2014, 15 timeframe. The sort of hybrid notion was sort of coming into the industry and people were exploring. I think the hybrid notion came out with people just exploring the cloud while they had an on-premise infrastructure already set up. And I think now there's, I don't know the percentage of how much the industry is divided, but I think there's a significant percentage of hybrid infrastructure along with all cloud and completely completely on the cloud infrastructure. On-premise might be still alive in some traditional companies, but uh, if they've explored something, then I think they might end up with a hybrid infrastructure. And yes, that, that is a trend I've observed because you have these large players within uh, the cloud infrastructure. You have Amazon who have their own solution. You have Google. You have uh, Microsoft Azure. And it sort of makes it easy for any user to develop things on Spark and like you already have this infrastructure. Think of it like them taking care of your needs for Spark as well. So they come with your infrastructure that you already built and they help you integrate some of the Spark and the Hadoop ecosystem into their ecosystem. So that's probably easier for customers to migrate. And that's somewhere I think that is helping the trend to go up, at least coming into the cloud. And a lot of companies like Databricks and stuff also help more traditionally direct Spark on the cloud, not the holistic like EMR equivalent. But that, again, differs from company to company. What kind of use case you have if you want to go all on cloud? Think of it like Confluent versus whatever Amazon is doing on Kafka. So it's it's kind of that direct competition. Yeah, actually, as you were talking, I was thinking 2014. No, that's actually the year I became chair of Strata. And if I look back, at the program back then, it was like HDFS, not not much about S3 and all these services, right? So mostly HDFS and then uh, the H-based tutorials and content were super popular back then. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. I remember Lars was pretty popular back then with all his book and the, the tutorial material that he wrote. Yeah. And now I don't know the last time I heard about HBase. I've not used HBase even since while I was Cloudera. I was more closer to the HDFS infrastructure than anything else. And I think the push to S3 came out of the interest in cloud and uh, what Amazon had to offer. Uh, we're all in S3 and that's how we've been. Yeah. Just ob- object stores in general are just uh, performant enough, right? So you can do everything yeah. there, right? So. With HDFS, I think there's large-scale use cases. I know Uber is using HDFS, and they're trying to tweak enough to to match their scale. Right. It's kind of if you go down that solution, you have to sort of come, you have to come and optimize it for yourself. So if there's any kind of shortcomings, then you have to go in and tweak it enough to make sure your use case works on it. And I see the push into S3 coming in at least. It was, it's working fine for us, and we've been using that infrastructure for a while. And I think that'll grow as long as there's enough push into the cloud. I think there's more motivation to go into object stores than before. Yeah, and then uh, there's still a lot of innovation in different parts of the stack, right? So uh, Spark is still evolving, and then there's a new system that I like called Apache Pulsar, uh, which unifies uh, messaging and queuing. Still a lot of good uh, innovation out in open source, big data infrastructure. So before we close, I wanted to get your take on a role that I started talking about last year. And I had Jesse Anderson and Paco Nathan debate about it on an episode here 
earlier this year. So what is your take on this role, machine learning engineer? That is interesting. It, I think it's a new role coming out of the recent trend in the machine learning. It's more combining the strengths of, I think of it like a blend of a data scientist and a software engineer. Like we, at least at Stitch Fix, we have data scientists. We don't go by that title of machine learning engineer, but think of them, I think machine learning engineer would be more of a data scientist with variety of background having the understanding of the software stack and having the sort of principles that go with it. And I think the role itself might come with the responsibility to A, understand the business use case that they're developing and also be responsible for the entire pipeline of productioning, production. productionizing, yep. understanding the modeling and the sort of ownership of the entire workflow. So think of that as, I'm guessing that would be the, the essential role for a machine learning engineer. And this not just think of it like, uh, if I could summarize it, that would be easier to be a data scientist plus a software engineer thrown into one one role. But it's something that's real, right? So just because you guys don't have it as Stitch Fix, you've probably encountered people with this title. I've seen it on LinkedIn pop up over over the past year or so. Um, not particularly. I mean, it's it depends. Uh, I think if if you need a use case of a blend of a software engineer and data scientist uh, background, then most certainly that, that that makes sense. But unless that limits it to only machine learning and uh, not traditional data science, so I think that scoping of the role might be more organizational perspective. It might be specific to every organization, like what they want out of that engineer. So that's something I think the the teams and the the companies they that advertise might have to focus on to understand like what they need out of this individual who's coming in as a machine learning engineer. So this has been a great conversation. So reminder to our listeners, Nilesh will be giving a couple of talks at Strata Data. The first one is in late March at Strata Data San Francisco. It will be on data lineage. And then the other one is in the start of May at Strata Data London. And this will be about evolving your data infrastructure. So thank you, Nilesh. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for having me. As a reminder, Nilesh Salyan will be speaking at Strata Data London. Thank you for joining us. If you like the show, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn.com or SoundCloud or Spotify and never miss an episode.